You're listening to the briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, the truce between Israel and Hamas has been delayed, but we look at what role the US played in seemingly reaching it. Then, a surprisingly large election win for Dutch politician Hurt Wilders. <laughs> We'll look at the implications for the Netherlands and the wider EU, plus the latest business news and... Hello, Vini. For today's Global Countdown, we're looking at the top songs in the Solomon Islands. That's right. We'll be heading to the Pacific for this week's Global Countdown with Fernando Augusto Pacheco. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, the expectation was at this point we'd be a few hours into a four-day truce in Gaza with 50 hostages kidnapped from Israel on the 7th of October having been swapped this morning for a number of Palestinian prisoners. However, the pause in combat operations has seemingly been delayed until at least Friday. There are claims the offer was first proposed several weeks ago but not taken up by Israel in order for it to pursue its military objectives. But pressure, not just from hostage families, but also from the US, meant Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has agreed to it now. Julie Norman is co-director of University College London Centre on US politics. Julie, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how much pressure has Washington actually been putting on Israel to finally agree to this truce? Well, the U.S. has been very involved in the conversations around this deal since the days right after October 7th. And that has included um, a lot of leverage, a lot of discussions, and yes, some pressure with Israel. And really all parties have been working in a kind of a massive um, web of coordination with um, Qatar really at the center, speaking to Hamas the U.S. then talking to Qatar, and then the U.S. then speaking to Israel. So a lot of different moving parts, but the U.S. has been very central in this diplomacy, um, some through the administration, and then some really from Biden directly, with literally getting on the phone with not only Netanyahu, but with the Qatari emir as well to get this deal through. President Biden likes to play on his decades on the world stage and the personal relationships he had. But what is the state of his own relationship now with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the wider US-Israel relationship after six weeks of this war? Yes, yeah, so, you know, one term that we've heard a lot is uh, the bear hug approach, where Biden came out very quickly with very strong support for Israel that was seen around the world. And I think many, including Biden himself, truly felt that, but also felt that was probably the most strategic way to have some leverage with Netanyahu and with Israel to caution some restraint in the days and weeks ahead. It's obviously arguable as to how much of that restraint has been taken into account. Um, you know, many feel that uh, that Netanyahu um, has perhaps been more moderate than some in his government. Others think he has gone too far. But from the U.S. perspective, it was this sense of come in close, come in tight, show that global support, get that military aid going, but also start having these more difficult conversations behind the scenes regarding humanitarian pauses, behind the hostage release, and behind the operation itself, as well as the end game. 
The early offers of unconditional support, though, were quite widely criticised. The administration seems to have rode back on that publicly. Do you think that played a part in this truce now? Well, I do think it was important. And again, that was somewhat from public pressure in the United States. As you noted, there were you know, many uh, protest demonstrations in the United States, from, especially from Arab and Muslim communities, but really from many on the progressive left more broadly. But I think the real pressure came from two points. One, the U.S. watching the situation unfold on the ground you know, learning lessons from their own incursions into Iraq and elsewhere to know about the potential security backlash for Israel. And secondly, from what they were hearing from allies and partners in the region, um, Blinken was engaged in very heavy diplomacy with Arab leaders during this time. And they were simply saying, look, the stance that Washington is taking right now is just not going to work in terms of getting a deal or in terms of, uh, you know, containing this conflict. So you need to take a slightly different tack. And I, I think the administration heard that. And turning to the increasingly isolationist Republican Party, what has their response been like since October 7th? Yeah, it's been interesting. I would say for for most Republican lawmakers, it's been pretty much in lockstep with Israel, very strong support for Netanyahu and for getting military aid um, and overall for voters as well. But it hasn't been um, uniform. You know, there are some, again, who are pushing for more isolationist U.S. foreign policy in general, not only regarding Ukraine, but including Israel as well, and are hesitant to get too deeply involved with them with that also. So we're we're hearing some of those rumblings, but overall the GOP has been trying to present themselves as the pro-Israel, pro um, you know U.S. leadership on this issue kind of party, and I think they'll try and lean into that in 2024 with the election. Well, you've prompted my next question. How much of an electoral issue is this going to be, particularly given the Democrats seem slightly caught off guard by how critical younger generations are of Israel? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, the U.S. public opinion has shifted somewhat quickly on this issue, um, and especially among the Democratic Party, which historically was seen as the more pro-Israel party, if you will, really through the end of the the 1990s. But we've seen a gradual shift with younger voters such that now the Democrats are really split down the middle with leaning more towards Palestinian or Israeli sympathies. Um, So with all that said, though, I would say you know we've seen a lot of vocal, um, again, demonstrations, protests, etc., among many who this conflict hits quite personally and and, and who feel quite strongly about it. But in reality, most voters, this isn't going to be their top priority issue next November, a year from now. Um, Most will be voting more on domestic issues. That's just the fact of what we know from U.S. elections, unless, uh, you know, U.S. boots are on the ground. And so I don't think it will have a massive effect. I do would temper that by saying, we have seen in the previous U.S. elections, you know, a few thousand or tens of thousand votes in key swing states can make a big difference. So if some of um, previous Biden supporters in Michigan or other states sit it out or change their vote, that could have an impact. And do we know why this has been the case, particularly with younger voters? There's some suggestions it's down to the prism of TikTok's coverage of the conflict. Well, I think it's some degree with um, just social media coverage in general that the images and the coverage that we see of this conflict are just very different than we would have seen you know, 20 or even five or 10 years ago. And so these images of civilian suffering and whatnot um, you know, are just all over everyone's social medias, but especially um, young people's. But I think it's a little bit more than that. Um, you know, The left has taken on a bit more of a um, social justice oriented um, leaning in recent years. There's a lot of sense of solidarity from, um, you know, from, from 
protests in the U.S. around racial issues and inequalities that many see the Palestinian issue linked to that as well. Again, it's not uniform. We do see some differences, but I would say that that has just become a bit more of the progressive movement's stance um, just uh, over time. And finally, Julie, this conflict could deteriorate. But do you think in the future, when they look back at uh, President Joe Biden's time in office, this might be seen as a successful moment for him? Because there were great fears in the early days that this could be a full regional conflict. But, you know, he sent in two aircraft carrier groups. He's worked the diplomatic channels. He was obviously on the verge potentially of getting a deal signed between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which now seems kicked into the long grass. But do you think his response will be viewed favourably? I think it's a little too early to say. Um, there's certainly the potential for that. I think we did see Biden um, in a much more uh, overt leadership role in this conflict than we sometimes see him taking on, um, giving more public speeches, being very involved in diplomacy. But again, this conflict, it's um, this deal is definitely good news, but it's definitely not the end of the conflict either. And a lot will just depend on what happens. Julie, thank you. That was University College London's Julie Norman. Now here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Party for Freedom, a far-right party led by Geert Wilders, has claimed victory in the Dutch general election with nearly all votes counted. The election was called after the sitting coalition fell apart over migration policy. Party for Freedom will now try to form a coalition. Finland will close all but one of its border crossings with Russia after a rise in undocumented migrants arrived in the Nordic country. Helsinki has accused Moscow of deliberately channeling people towards the country's shared border, a claim the Kremlin denies. And a Japanese government panel will begin discussions next month to discuss the commercialization of driverless taxis. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told officials that efforts should be accelerated to create rules for self-driving cars. The panel is expected to draw up a report as early as May next year. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Emma. Well, as just mentioned, after decades in Dutch politics, Hurt Wilders has had a dramatic night. De grootste partij van Nederland. En ik zeg jullie, Nederland, de kiezer heeft vanavond gesproken. De kiezer heeft The largest party in the Netherlands. I tell you, Netherlands. The voter has spoken tonight. The voter has said we are fed up with it. We are totally fed up with it. And we want and we will ensure that the Dutchman will be number one again. En die die Nederlander Die Nederlander the Dutchman also has hope, and the hope of the Netherlands is that the people will get their country back. Kurt Wilders there speaking overnight. Well, Ben Coates is a columnist for the Dutch newspaper Al-Hamen Dachblatt and the author of Why the Dutch Are Different into the Hidden Heart of the Netherlands. He joins me now. Uh, ben, it seems like the scale of this victory has taken everyone by surprise. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the, the front page headline of the national broadcast this morning described it as an earthquake in Dutch politics. And I think that's pretty much what it was. Um, Keir Wilders has been around on the scene for a number of, well, a couple of decades now. And he's previously done quite well in elections, come third and fourth and things like that. And most of the polls expected him to do something similar this time, come in second or third behind a couple of the bigger parties. Uh, maybe win something like 27 or 28 seats in Parliament, which in 150 seats up Parliament isn't too bad. Um, and he's absolutely smashed those expectations, um, ended up winning 37 seats rather than the 27 or so that was predicted. 
got 24% of the votes um, when no other party managed to get more than 15 or 16% um, and is now in a front runner to perhaps not become the next prime minister, but certainly be the driving force behind the formation of the next government. And what actually happens now? Could there be any coalition with him as prime minister? Well, it's all very complicated. There's um, something like 20 parties in parliament. And so there's an almost infinite number of combinations of parties you could put together in different coalitions. The most likely two options at the moment would be that a couple of the big right-wing parties, the VVD of Mark Rutter and the NSA, would join together um, and find a coalition with Keir Wilders, probably not as prime minister, but maybe in a senior ministerial role there. Or on the other hand, it could be a more left-wing coalition where the parties would come together to deliberately exclude Wilders, and then you would get the VVD plus uh, the Green Left Party, uh, D66, the NSC, a few of these um, smaller green left-wing parties join together and deliberately block Wilders out from government. At the moment, I have to say, I think the right-wing option is probably more likely, given the the sounds that other parties were making in the run-up to the election, saying that they would potentially be willing to collaborate with Wilders if he just made gave ground on some issues. And why do you think he's been able to do this now after decades in politics? Well, this has been quite an unusual election. It's really been a change election. Um, Mark Rutter stepping down as prime minister after 13 years in the job. And almost all of the major parties, apart from Kirill Wilders' party, have changed leaders. So in a strange way, this very radical figure who wants to upend everything represents a little bit of continuity. Um, someone who's been around the block a few times and is still hanging in there. Um, I think also the economic situation has obviously benefited right-wing populists in the Netherlands as it house elsewhere. And I think the other big parties made some quite serious missteps when it came to their electoral strategy. In particular, the VVD, Mark Rutte's party, chose to campaign very strongly on immigration issues um, where they thought they could outflunk um, builders and tempt back some voters. But it seems that actually by just focusing the campaign on immigration issues, they've just given more oxygen to the far right and made it easier for builders to cut through. And what's been the reaction amongst ordinary uh, Dutch people? Well, some people are very pleased, obviously, around a quarter of the voters voted for Wilders um, and something like 70% altogether voted for right wing parties. So there's a lot of people who would be fairly happy to see quite a right wing coalition come in. But I think under a lot of people, there's also a degree of shock. I mean, a lot of the things that Wilders had put in his manifesto, um, things like trying to leave the EU, uh, trying to stop aid to Ukraine, banning Muslim headscarves, forcibly closing mosques, banning people from owning copies of the Quran. These are all things that I think won't necessarily happen, given the way that Dutch politics depends on horse trading and giving things up. Um, but it's quite shocking to people that so many people have voted for that platform. And you mentioned it there, the EU. What are the implications? Because he's talking about Nexit, a uh, sort of uh, Netherlands Brexit type vote. Even if he doesn't get a referendum on that, he'll make life pretty difficult for Brussels, won't he? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think an actual Nexit is quite unlikely. Wilders has been pushing for one for years, but there's not a huge level of public appetite for that. Most Dutch people seem fairly happy being in the EU. And I think the British experience of leaving over the last few years has kind of been a salutary tale to many people um, and made them more inclined to stay. But I'm sure if Wilders does make it into government, then the government would be taking a tougher line. And even if he doesn't, some of the parties in the coalition, like the NSC, the um, VVD, to a lesser extent, are also taking a fairly firm line on things like EU spending and rebates and so on. Um, and so I think, well, if I was a bureaucrat in Brussels, I wouldn't be very happy with this result either. 
Do you think this might hasten, uh, you know, there's been lots of talk about EU expansion recently, but there's also been talk about reforms needed. Do you think that Brussels might sit up, see Wilders coming in, see elections down the line where similar right parties could come in, the trouble they're having with Viktor Orban, that they might decide to use this as an impetus to do some reforms that are needed? So I think it's probably necessary if you look at the way the wind is blowing and where public opinion sits. And there does seem to be a bit of a gap between what the EU institutionally wants to do in terms of ever closer union and what a lot of the public wants in terms of the exact opposite. Um, How that translates into real action, I'm not sure. I'm afraid I think um, Brexit is, again, maybe an interesting example where the EU in some hands did things quite well in negotiating the exit deal, but also prior to the Brexit vote didn't seem particularly responsive to the the idea that Britain might actually vote to leave and seems to sort of treat it all as a bit of a joke. So I hope the same situation doesn't happen again here. And finally, what kind of mark at the end of Mark Root's 13 years in power do you think this will leave on his legacy? Well, I think it's uh, it's not a good thing for his legacy to be leaving this behind. Um, his muted successor, Dylan Yezogos, um, the leader of the VVD now, um, he pushed her very hard and it seemed she was on track for quite a strong election victory and potentially becoming prime minister. Now that's all blown up in their faces. So that's obviously not a good look. I, I was talking to someone earlier about perhaps there's a parallel with um, Barack Obama, who sort of stepped down in a haze of happy glory and then was promptly replaced by Donald Trump, and that cast his whole legacy in a different light. Um, And I think there's all sorts of factors and reasons behind Wilder's success at this point, but it also has to be seen as a failure of some of the other parties to fight back effectively against him, including Rutter's. And just you touched on it there, we were expecting that the Netherlands would have its first female prime minister today. Why do you think she didn't manage to break through as expected? I think, again, it was partly the the focus on immigration. I think she chose to push the immigration issue very hard. She is herself the child of Turkish Kurdish immigrants, so in a slightly unusual position to be campaigning against immigration. And I think that didn't really work. That maneuver backfired and she was kind of successfully outflanked by um, Wilders. If people are caring about immigration and worried about these issues, you go back to the original source, not to the sort of tribute act that follows. Ben Coates, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with the briefing on Monocourt Radio. We can get the latest business news headlines now from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, some disappointing economic data from the Eurozone area today, fueling concerns about a recession. Hi, Vincent. Yeah, we've had the Purchasing Managers Index readings for November. Now, the reason that economists get excited about these is that they're a forward-looking indicator, and they're kind of the best data we have on the economy at the moment. A lot of data looks back, sometimes uh, a few weeks, sometimes a few months. The PMIs are an update survey of the current economy. So this is the reading for November, and it's actually the sixth consecutive month uh, where the reading has been below 50, and that indicates uh, contraction. So we had readings today from France and from Germany, some of the other big economies in the euro area, and the overall euro area figure. Now, the overall number for the euro area came in at 47.1, so 50 marks the point between expansion and contraction. So that is uh, contraction territory. It's slightly better than economists were expecting. Uh, but the services sector in Europe is looking pretty slow. And manufacturing, we know, has been in contraction for some time now. The manufacturing number uh, below the services reading. We did uh, hear that in France, uh, manufacturing and services uh, suffering equally from uh, weak demand. Uh, and in Germany, 
picture is improving. German economy has been very weak in the last uh, few months, particularly because the economy is heavily dependent on manufacturing, and manufacturing has been having uh, a rough year, to be honest. So the two biggest economies uh, in Europe, both showing signs of contraction. Whether that tips into recession is really the key question. Now, of course, the recession is two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. Uh, we're not there yet, but the economies are looking uh, pretty flat. We had a slightly better reading actually out of the UK today. That uh, came in at 50.1, so you would certainly call that no growth, but it is uh, above the, the 50 threshold, and that was slightly better than economists were expecting. Some signs of price pressures are, of course, the flip side of a bit better economic picture uh, is that there are more worries about inflation, and that is something that the Bank of England will be keen to uh, get a grip on. And investors are still digesting the fallout from the UK Chancellor's autumn statement yesterday. Yeah, it's almost exactly 24 hours now since the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, stood up to deliver his uh, autumn statement. After a period in which uh, the government has put up taxes quite heavily in the uh, aftermath of the pandemic when they spent so much money uh, and in the the energy crisis as well, we did get two uh, eye-catching tax cuts, uh, a two percentage point reduction in the headline rates of national insurance, which is a payroll tax. Business, a big tax cut, full expensing of uh, business investments. That was made uh, permanent, extending uh, a temporary measure. So that was a big tax cut for business. Uh, the headline on the economic growth forecast, though, was that those have been downgraded considerably. The, the official government forecast of the Office for Budget Responsibility uh, said that growth uh, next year will be only 0.7%. Uh, and in the following year, 1.4%. Those are quite big downgrades to the UK's growth forecast. Now, that is, of course, important for the Chancellor in setting his, his budget framework. He's got little money to play with. And it's interesting to see how this affects public spending as well. This is something which uh, the next government, whether it be Labour or Conservative, and the polls suggest that the opposition Labour Party uh, are likely to win the next election uh, next year. That's something that will concern both parties, really. Public spending is... Being, has been squeezed considerably uh, in these plans. We're just digging into the detail uh, of the autumn statement, and the, the public sending settlement is uh, very tight uh, for the coming years. Uh, interestingly, the opposition Labour Party has accepted both of the big uh, tax cuts that we saw in the autumn statement yesterday, but that leaves them in a very tricky position because they have to uh, try and eke out some growth in public spending. They have lots of spending priorities, but having accepted the big to tax cuts, it's quite difficult to see where that money is going to come from. And the Chancellor was trying to say that things had changed, conditions had changed, but many pointing out that simply, as you mentioned, we are just possibly a year at most away from a general election and he's trying to reset the narrative. Do you think that that was the sort of firing gun yesterday for that election? Well, I think both parties really keen to talk about growth because that's something they think they can affect. The Chancellor started his... uh, a statement saying he's uh, spelling out 110 uh, growth measures, uh, many of them inevitably uh, pretty small. But both parties really keen to grow the economy because they know that uh, the public are not keen on tax rises uh, and there is really lim- limited money uh, for uh, public spending. So Labour, of course, also put in a focus on this because they don't want to be seen to be raising taxes. Uh, so Labour are, are looking at supply-side measures to get the economy growing faster. But as we know, the UK economy has had very tepid growth for a number of years. It's a picture which is reflected across uh, much of the rest of Europe uh, as well. But the Chancellor will very much have his eyes on that general election. He has got another 
chance of this as well. There's going to be a budget in the spring. But he did want to see, uh, he did want to reflect that after hitting the inflation target, we, we've now halved inflation uh, over the course of this year, which was a key promise from the Prime Minister. Uh, the Conservatives need to be seen to be uh, delivering something beyond that. So they were very keen to uh, spell out these, these tax cuts, the light at the end of the tunnel. But yes, uh, certainly the countdown to the election very much uh, in the Chancellor's head. Ewan Potts, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally today, that sound means it's time for the Global Countdown with our senior correspondent and music curator, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, where are we headed this week? We are heading to the Pacific. And Vinny, I have to say, you know, I've done most countries by now at the Global Countdown, but this is the first time I'm doing the Solomon Islands. Mm. It's a country, I have to be honest, I don't know much about it, uh, but hopefully people in Haniara are listening and hopefully they they approve of what I'm going to say about their music because I think it's quite nice. (laughs) actually the top five well you 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 will see you will yeah see. one of the locations you do have to look up just to check you know exactly where it is uh but yeah let's have a listen to the first track uh at number five we have young davy featuring shenry the song's called uh, haiji mai let's have a listen and then we can talk a little bit more about the song <laughs> We're all surprised, Vinny. You know, it's a small country. I think population around 700,000. But I do think, especially in the Solomon Islands, they are kind of popular in the Pacific region. Uh, Young David, the singer of that track, he was touring Australia only a week ago. He was in Brisbane, in Melbourne. So it's quite interesting that actually uh, the music from the Solomon Islands is traveling. And that's kind of the vibe as well. Very Mm. chilled. Very chilled island vibes. You could imagine that on, you know, a sunset beach bar kind of... Playlist, absolutely. And I read. I mean, I mean, you might be wrong, but apparently he works at the South Pacific Oil Limited. So I wonder <laughs> if part time is a <laughs> pop star or not. I mean, but that's that's interesting. I mean, please, young David, correct me if I'm wrong on this one. <laughs> and what's at number four? Uh, number four, we have Shamri, uh, featuring Sharksy and Jenico with Oh Zana. Let's have a listen. <laughs> And Shenri, I think he's a romantic, as you can see with the vibe of this track. I believe Shenri, we might hear from him a bit more as well later in the show, but he is potentially the biggest name uh, in the Solomon Islands music industry. He's a producer as well. Uh, he is the lead singer of a, of a band called the Zine Brothers, uh, which are also popular. So, I mean, he's big. He's big in the Solomon Islands. He's big in the Solomon Islands. <laughs> okay, number three. Uh, number three, something different. I think the song is a little bit popular. There's some elements of a ma piano. Uh, it's basically modern island music. It's Jaro Loco with Kativa. I think it's 
quite a sexy song, if I may say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there's some, uh, you know, and he actually, you know, I mentioned that the Zin Brothers, he used to be a member of that band because he's cousins of Shenri. So it's all in family here oh, in okay. the top five. I've got to say so far, it's very male-heavy, this uh, chart. Very male-heavy. So please, if anyone knows, like, a good female artist from the Solomon Islands. But yeah, it's pretty male-heavy, and I think he might continue to be very male. And Jaro as well, he won the Vodafone Pacific Music Awards. Mm. Not bad. There we go. Uh, in at number two, who is it? Guess who's back? It's it's Shenri, but I think it's, I don't know, perhaps the music industry, as I said, is a small country. So there are a lot of collaborations. And this time, Shenri, he asked uh, Alexis, which is a producer from the country as well. Uh, the difference of this track we're going to hear, I think it's more reggae uh, than the okay. other three, perhaps. Uh, let's have a listen to Carla Wayne by Shenri and Alexis. Yeah, very clear what the influence is there. They name check reggae music and everything. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and Vinny, people might be surprised, but because of course I love my electro pop and, you know, bossa nova, but I, I like reggae. Okay. I think there's a certain vibe for it, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. so the weekend is being as approaching, you know, having a nice cold beer. Is reggae big in Brazil? It's kind of big. I mean, I wouldn't okay. say it's our main genre, but yeah, we do have some sort yeah. of a Brazilian variation of reggae. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of like it. I don't mind that as well. Okay. Are you enjoying it so far? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And <laughs> in at number one, who have we got? Guess who's back again? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's undeniable. He's the biggest name there in the industry. Uh, Shenri. And as I said, the music from the Solomon Islands is traveling. And from what I understand, Australia, the biggest country in the region, is a big consumer mm-hmm. uh, of this type of music as well. And this song is very, very romantic. It's called Bacabaya with Genu and Young Davy. Young Davy is back again as well. Let's have a listen. And I have to apologize to listeners because, of course, in Solomon Islands, they speak English and Pidgin, which is most of the tracks we've heard are in Pidgin. And Mm -hmm. there's no official kind of dictionary on Google Translate. <laughs> so I am struggling. I, w- I was struggling a little bit. So I wonder, maybe I should have done a course, a little quick course on Pigeon before uh, coming here, but c'est la vie. Oh, well, it's a busy week for you, I know. Well, um, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.